This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. It was a bit of a surprise in the financial news sector. Japanese publisher Nikkei will be purchasing the Financial Times for $1.3 billion. It is the latest move in an ever-changing media world, which also shows how important Asia is to the global economy, as well as the media covering that global economy. To take a look at this move, we're joined by two guests. First, Wharton Assistant Professor of Management, Emily Feldman, who joins us here in the studio, as well as Ken Doctor, who is a media analyst for Newsonomics and a contributor to Harvard's Neiman Journalism Lab. He's also the author of the book Newsonomics, 12 New Trends That Will Shape the News That You Get. Emily, great to see you again. Thanks great. for coming in. Thank you. Great. Ken, great to have you on the phone. Thanks for joining uh, us. Good morning. Uh, first, Ken, I'll start with you. In terms of this deal getting done, I think a lot of people were surprised that it was Nikkei that ended up being the uh, the final resting place for the Financial Times. But I guess they had done work together in the past, so maybe not as so much a surprise. Yeah, that's, that's true. Their name had not popped up. Uh, but if you look at at the list at uh, Pearson, which is a, a uh, educational publisher that has owned the FT, uh, was considering, they really wanted a company that would be a good steward for the brand. They badly wanted the money and a lot of it, <laughs> uh, but they they wanted a good steward for the brand. So uh, it was discounted early on whether it would be a Russian oligarch or a Persian Gulf sheik uh, who have uh, a lot of money jangling around. Uh, so we went to the usual suspects of uh, Bloomberg and Thomson Reuters and Dow Jones and maybe Axel Springer in Germany. But uh, Nikkei was, uh, was not someone that, that, that was considered. Uh, that said, it makes sense in that it's a longtime financial news publisher. Uh, it is just one that's not on the international stage because uh, the Japanese don't, don't tend to be uh, international media players. Emily, from the business perspective, what was what was really the hook that you saw in this? Yeah, definitely. So I think um, you can look at it from Pearson's perspective and you can look at it from Nikkei's perspective. So, you know, for me, Nikkei was clearly buying its growth outside of a, a slow and even shrinking market. Um, so that was really the access point for it to, to gain access to this uh, to this new this new set of growth, this new set of subscribers and mm-hmm. access to the markets and everything. Um, from Pearson's perspective, it's really um, a remarkable step in this uh, strategic shift that they've been undertaking uh, over the past years. Um, so they've obviously been refocusing on their core education business um, and getting rid of this uh, this asset. The FT is a major step in that in that process of transformation. So. Uh, by selling this, they got access to a lot of cash um, that they can use to fund further further growth, uh, yeah. further acquisitions in, uh, in 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 this education business. These education businesses that they that they want to focus in. I guess then the, the, one of the interesting thing is is that I guess uh, Pearson uh, also owns uh, part of the Economist as well. Yes, which they did not sell in this. So there's a, a media entity that they chose to hold on to. Yeah, I would say we're looking at a sale of The Economist, I would guess, within a matter of weeks at this okay. point. Uh, okay. I think that's probably the next step in this process. They've already, they they were saying, I think just yesterday, that they're already in talks. The tricky thing with The Economist uh, stake that they own, so they own a 50% stake in The Economist, but it's, it's, uh, it's, 
kind of a lower lower stake than 50% really. So sure. in the sense that they own the class B shares, sure. whereas uh, there's another group of investors who own class A shares, and they're the ones who actually have uh, sort of voting power on the board and decision power. So anyone who buys uh, Pearson's 50% stake uh, in the FT is going to have to settle or is going to be willing to settle for uh, a, a stake in which they don't have full control over over the asset that they're buying. And so I would I would venture that uh, the price that Pearson is going to fetch for that is going to be a lot lower than hmm. uh, sort of the, the the price that they got for for the FT there. You mentioned the educational segment, which which is a big part for Pearson. What 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 types of of pieces are we talking about that they are really trying to push forward? Oh, everything. I mean, yeah. so so they run. Uh, if you've ever taken a standardized test, they run all those standardized test centers. Uh, they run uh, kind of the the testing processes for tests like the GMAT and such. Yeah. Um, they also have kind of schools uh, and educational systems uh, across the world uh, in the U.S. and in uh, markets everywhere, basically South America, uh, uh, Europe, everything. Um, and then and then they 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 publish right. They they have books and and uh, pieces of, of uh, consumable media that 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 people can read. Um, uh, so kind of a book business as well. Uh, that that's part of this too. So then, really, not a surprise, Ken. The fact that we're we're seeing another one of these deals where a media outlet ba- uh, owned by a company that maybe it's not their their total for a uh, core focus really wants to get out of, uh, of the media business. Well, except it, 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 it's, it's true that's been the case, but in, in this one, it's almost the inverse in that this business has been doing better than right. their other business. Yes. Yeah. So the other businesses that we've seen from uh, News Corp and Gannett and Tribune and Scripps, uh, in the last three years, those companies have all split their uh, broadcast assets, up, largely local broadcast uh, assets, from their newspaper assets because, as you point out, the newspaper assets were essentially failing yep. financially. So they wanted to better themselves in every one of these cases. Um, the parent company, whether it changed its name or not, the, the really the surviving company became the broadcast company, which at least has tepid growth. Not a great business to be in, but tepid growth compared to a failing newspaper business. But in this case, um, the FT uh, group, and the FT is the major part of that, uh, is part of the professional group of Pearson, and that group has been outperforming uh, the education business by far, uh, both in revenue growth and in, and in profit, um, the last couple of years. So it's it's kind of the inverse, and um, and they they have an opportunity to sell. It's going to be very interesting. I think this is, this is a high price. This is a a multiple of of uh, earnings of somewhere between thirty and thirty five times, depending yeah. on how we count their pension contribution. Be interesting to see in in two years if we have a sense of whether they sold too early. Because the FT has been, I've covered that story for about eight, nine years now. They have really been the leader in digital transformation in the news business worldwide. And that has meant they've tripled profits, even though it's relatively small level, uh, 2014 over 2013. And it could be that Pearson sold too early in that sense, that they could have gotten more in two years um, had they continued to manage the business. But I guess then, in some respects, uh, and may, we don't know this for certain, that uh, Pearson, I guess, thought that at $1.3 billion, and with what they want to accomplish with the other pieces to their puzzle, Emily, that that 
they could have waited a little bit longer, as as Ken suggests, but now was the time, look, let's take this money, it's good money, that's it, and now we can really push forth the other plans that we have in place. Well, exactly, and I, th- I think that's kind of the point, right? So I, I was reading this morning that um, in terms of the, the net cash proceeds that, that Pearson is going to get out of this deal, it's somewhere between $650 million and $700 million uh, worth of cash proceeds. Yeah. Last year, at the end of the year, they had around $500 million of cash, right? So they're basically more than doubling the amount of cash that they have on hand. Yeah. I mean, this is core strategy one-on-one. You know, yes, they're getting rid of this newspaper asset, and I agree with everything that Ken just said. But on the other hand, now they can really focus in on this core area that they've been deepening and broadening in uh, over the over the past few years, and and this is really the the linchpin and the center of their strategy. And now they have the funds to to invest in it uh, and to to focus their manager's attention on it instead of being distracted by, you know, this this newspaper business and everything else that's going on on the side. But not only can it, is the is the Financial Times doing very well, but this sector of the media is doing exceptionally well right now. When you think about. All the entities. I mean, we basically have four networks that are out there that are doing financial news on a daily basis. Uh, you know, Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones uh, under the under the Fox banner uh, for the last few years. Uh, and, and certainly, uh, it looks like that Nikkei wants to really expand its its purview with the purchase of the Financial Times in this area. Yeah, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about unprecedented leadership uh, in the news business, which, which is interesting because um, Japanese media companies have not done that. The the language barrier is much more severe between Japan and um, the English-speaking world than it is uh, with Europe. Uh, but Nikkei has money, and they do want expansion. I just wrote a piece. hasn't come out. It'll come out later today at... Um, Capital New York, I did an interview with John Ridding, who's the uh, CEO of the FT. And I talked to him on Friday, and I said, well, so Asia, this is, this is uh, I mean, it's, we know the, the strategy here and the financials here, but this is really about Asia expansion and, and grabbing that fast-growing market. And he said, basically, yes, but, and he said, uh, in the talks with Nikkei, um, they have both agreed that the number one market for this combination with with new capital is the United States. Sure. That Asia is number two. And he said for the FT, the United States is still really an emerging market. And then he kind of laughed (laughs) because we don't think of ourselves that way. But um, so a a question is going to be both geographic but also how much investment is Nikkei going to make? The FT has somewhere shy of 600 journalists. And that compares, that's about a quarter as much as Thomson Reuters or Bloomberg and about a third of Dow Jones. So it's a relatively small company. And it will be really interesting to see how they decide to compete against those still bigger companies. Emily? Well, it's interesting because the the business model that we're seeing with a lot of these media outlets right now, uh, you mentioned, you talked about how uh, uh, the purchase of Fox uh, of uh, Dow Jones for $5 billion was a whopper of a number at that point. But it's, it's an area where you're seeing unprecedented growth because of the interest uh, in the global economy, partly probably because of the fact that the U.S. went through such a, a deep recession a few years ago and people want to stay more on top of this type of news now more than ever before, Ken. 
There, that, that's true, and there is a you, – you look at the other major phenomenon over the last year and a half or so in terms of digital news, which would be the tremendous focus on millennials. So oh. Vox, Vice, BuzzFeed, Mike, you, na- you name it, every one of these companies, the funding is all going to this generation that everybody has woken up and said, oh, my God, this is bigger than a baby boom. It's a huge generation. Well, you combine that in the business news world, and you have hundreds of thousands, and then depending on the market, uh, millions of people, in low millions, who are young. They're getting into the business world. They may be young managers. And for them, uh, these are the targets of these half-dozen business news companies to try to get to them who are uh, people who want the, the information, they want the data, they want the analysis, <laughs> and they are moving up the ladder. They've got, the FT, for instance, 13% of its readership is millionaires. Well, that's pretty yeah. good, but they realize uh, that, that that's a limited group. They really are going to the next circle. That's their core circle, the people they have right now. They're going to that next core circle in Asia, the U.S., and Europe, uh, and that is largely people in the business world who are younger, really 30 to 45, and to bring them into the next generation, and that's entirely digital growth. They're not going to invest in print. Uh, and they're not going to further invest in print anymore. Yeah, I, it's funny because, you know, you mentioned the, the demographics of what Financial Times has been. I, I happen to really enjoy reading some of the articles on Financial Times. I am most definitely not in that millionaire club. I, w- I will guarantee you that. But it is interesting how much that they really need to change Financial Times in terms of that digital content can going forward because that's a, that is the major investment that companies need to make these days. Absolutely. And they have been able to figure out a, uh, a formula where they now get more than half their revenue from readers. They price uh, print very well. They make, they make money off print. But they're closing printing plants. And I expected yeah. when I talked to John Rudding, he would say, well, we're going to continue to focus on the parts of print that are really good, and we'll, we'll harvest that at the same time that we expand digital. And he basically said, very politely, because he is British, but he said, nope. It's entirely digital investment. So they're going to hold on, and they're going to harvest print, as these companies are doing, but they are going to wholly invest in digital. And that's, as I do my work in, in this field, uh, that's, that's what the smartest companies are doing. You want to manage that print business much in the way that Netflix has managed after it had a hiccup, the DVD business. You yeah. want to manage that. You want to serve those customers well but you want to minimize any investment and put it where all the growth is. Still, I think, uh, 13 14% compounded growth in, in uh, digital advertising over the next five years. So but, that's where it's got to go. I mean, digital advertising is one thing, but the, the digital... The digital media perspective, the paid model that a lot of uh, outlets have gone to, is that something that's really been a successful entity to this point? And I say that because I go on the New York Times all the time and I keep getting, you know, you only can get 10 free articles a month, I think the deal is at, at this point. Is something right. is that something, Emily, that's that's really working in this day and age, that paid model 
for a lot of these for a lot of these media entities. So I had the same experience with you with the New York Times, and yeah. I hit my ten articles within the first week of, of the right, month. So exactly. I'm kind of done at that point. I think that I so Ken may know better on on uh, on what's going on specifically with NFT, but my impression is that they've really been the leader of sort of managing this digital subscription, and they've had a lot of success in converting, um, you know, sort of people like me who wouldn't normally pay for one of these subscriptions to. Yeah actually people who do pay for, for, for them and get to use them. So um, if there's a company that's going to do this, I guess that FT is probably the, the right one to, to, to be partnered with for Nikkei. Ken? Yeah, and, 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 and you both need to make sure you, you subscribe and stay subscribed. Because we, need, <laughs> we need people to continue to pay uh, for the high-quality news. Um, the FT, it's interesting. The, the New York Times rolled out its paywall in 2011, so it's been uh, four years now. And that was wholly modeled on the FT example, uh, which rolled out, I think, 2007. Yep. So it's been successful, highly successful with the New York Times, because now uh, more than six out of every $10 they take in comes from readers, and which is very important in a, in a world where advertising is, is changing greatly and Google and Facebook are dominating. But it is, it is a relatively few companies like the New York Times and the FT, Wall Street Journal, that have done well with paid content. It creates so much yeah. high-quality, daily, uh, unique content that they have enough people who are willing to pay for it. Um, the regional newspapers um, have, have also put in paywalls. Half of the dailies in the U.S. have paywalls. And they have made minor inroads with it. It's, it's stabilized them to a small degree, but not enough. So uh, the way I look at, at this movement is that reader revenue is hugely important to um, any, any publishing business that produces high-quality content. Uh, but, the, but we're very much stuck in this uh, paywalls 1.0 world where it's, it's, you know, pay a subscription and get everything or, um, or just take your 10 articles and go away for the month. And I think we're going to see new developments over the next couple of years to try to get people to pay for smaller streams of revenue. We've got pay-per-view, essentially buy article yeah. by article, companies like Blendle um, that are now coming to the United States. So we'll see new, new ways to do it. But the reader revenue is absolutely essential because the advertising world, that old advertising world, has just cratered. Is it a little bit almost like what we're starting to see in in the uh, in the in the TV industry, where you have all these entities starting to give you smaller packages, smaller bits uh, uh, of content, uh, rather than you know the traditional cable TV revenue, which you know uh, most people balk at now, or at least are mad at, whether they balk at it or not. Sure. Where, you're, where you're getting charged 150, 175 dollars a month, they'd rather go to the services like Sling uh, or or. Yep. Some of the other ones where you get a lot of the content, you don't have to deal with, you know, 75% of the channels you never watch, and you're paying, you know, $20 or $30 a month. Exactly, and HBO Go is a, is a very good example of that now and, and, um, and others as they go over the top. Uh, we would have thought if we had this conversation a year ago, we said definitely, yes, that makes, that makes um, abstract sense. New York Times tried this, uh, and it was about a year ago, with a product called New York Times Now, which was mm -hmm. cheaper. Um, it, was a, it was a lower price point, and it was a limited selection of stories, and essentially it failed. Huh. Uh, it didn't work. It was aimed at a millennial's uh, audience. 
the Times is now looking, and there are a few others looking at it, not doing it by just take fewer articles for less money, but to take um, certain streams, to take um, health or to take tech news, for instance. And we're going to see testing of how much you would pay for a, a certain topical area that you may be interested in. Yeah. The, the key price in the entertainment area, and entertainment, uh, I think business practice, practice informs a lot of this, is nine ninety five or less a month. Yeah. And um, the New York Times is basically the lowest price has been about $15 for a smartphone uh, subscription. So we're going to see uh, other attempts, but, but they have actually been too slow, I think, to find these niches and to get people to pay for them. But we'll see new efforts, I think, 2016 and beyond. But it's interesting because the, the trap you're going to run into down the road is is that, okay, you're going to pay less than $10 for a subscription to the New York Times or to whatever it is, and you're paying less than $10 for Netflix, and you're paying less than $10 for this and that and yep. this and this and that. And in the end, you're going to still end up paying the same amount of money for the same type of content than you were, say, 10 years ago. But it's content that's tailored specifically to right. you and what yeah. you want to read. So you're not paying for the overall package you're paying for the Dan specific package that that you want to read and that you want to consume so that'll include a lot of sports channels I tell you that right, right. A lot of sports channels. and then people are going to come along you're going to see rebundling right we're yeah. going to see in a lot of ways this seems, this seems kind of it's, it's simple right we have this unbundling because digital essentially allows unbundling Sure, and, yeah. it, and, and you ask somebody, do you want to pay you know, $150 a month for cable for all the stuff you don't watch? Of course we all say no, but the point you make is a really good one. You're going to end up paying maybe as much, but you don't want. In the old world, you got from um, you know, Time Warner or Charter or Comcast, you got, this is your bundle. You, know, you can yeah. get three different levels yeah. of it, but this is your bundle. You have no choice. Um, now we're going to see rebundling. And why not get, uh, what if you could get Netflix and the New York Times um, and Time Magazine together in a bundle sure, yeah. at a price that would be reduced by 15%? Well, that might be the right bundle for you. Yeah. And in di- with digital commerce, it's distinctly possible. But we'll see those kinds of combinations. And then good luck to us all in figuring out what the what the value is on the on the on this bundle compared to that bundle. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this all, all plays out. Thanks very much for coming in, Emily. Great to see you again, uh, Ken. Great to have you on the phone. Thank you again for joining us. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.